Welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our second mini-series on climate security, looking at the link between security and climate change top issues. I'm Sabrina Dao. And I'm Sofia Shevchuk. This series is a part of project led by Wise Brussels with the support of the US mission to NATO. In this mini-series, we bring together diverse voices of women across the world leading discussion in climate security. Through their own expertise and experience, they share and debate their point of view on critical climate security issues. We hope you will enjoy this episode as much as we do. Thank you for listening. In the second episode, we invited guests who research and work beyond Europe to provide a more global perspective as to how climate change causes geopolitical and security tensions. Is climate security only about weather? How does climate change challenge the concept of global security? These and more questions we answer in the following episode. In order to begin this episode, uh, we offer you to introduce yourselves, um, to tell us who you are, what do you do, why do you think you were invited for this episode, and maybe an anecdote on the topic, if you have any. Han, do you want to start? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on the episode today. Um, so I'm Hanne Knappa. I head the work on green transition and climate action at ECDPM. So ECDPM stands for European Center for Development Policy Management, and we are a Europe-Africa think tank. Within my work stream, um, I focus on adaptation, resilience, and just transition in a Europe-Africa context. And given the link, indirect and sometimes direct, between climate change, so my main area of, of work for many years, and security, I have increasingly looked at the climate security nexus. And I also coordinate ECDPM's involvement in the Cascades project uh, that looks at cascading climate impacts and how they can lead to conflict and instability, and then also what the role of Europe is in dealing with these impacts in an effective and in a coherent way. Super awesome. Thank you for joining us. Glada. Hello, Sophia and everyone. Pleased to be here. My name is Glada Lon. I work in the Environment and Society program at Chatham House, which is the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London. I have also been working on the project that Hannah mentioned, the Cascades project, uh, particularly focusing on the Middle East and North Africa. So we just uh, completed a big report on the climate impacts and options for resilience in that region. And previous to that, uh, we've done some work on similar issues in different regions around the world for the US government, and also Chatham House is working in the field of climate and security from a military perspective as well. So there are a number of angles. We, we, we have held several meetings in the house looking at different regions and the way that they will be affected by climate risks. My colleagues have also done a large expert elicitation survey on the kind of climate impacts that we can expect globally in the near term, which is very much influencing our work on solutions at the moment. Thank you both for your introductions. From what you just said, I hear that it will be indeed an interesting discussion and it's super nice that you work on the same project. We didn't know that when we aimed to invite you for, for this episode. So with this, I move to the first question. Is climate change actually causing already some geopolitical and security tensions? And how does it cause 
the tensions and which regions are the most critical ones when it comes to these geopolitical tensions? I think when it comes to critical regions, I think there are many regions that are under pressure of climate impacts, and there is often a direct or indirect link between climate impacts and security. Now, I work mostly in Africa and, and lately more and more in North Africa. So, and, and so I would like to expand a bit on the work that I've been doing there, as I see this as definitely a critical region when it comes to um, climate security risks. And um, perhaps within North Africa, I did a lot of work on Tunisia. I can, I can use this as an illustration um, because together with climate impacts in the country, there are, there are other factors, also climate impacts that are happening in countries elsewhere with which Tunisia has important relations, such as trade relations, and I will explain what I mean with that. But so there are many factors to consider the situation in a country like Tunisia as potentially unstable and even explosive. I, I, I just mentioned that this aspect of transboundary climate risks, so the fact that Tunisia is very um, food import dependent when it comes for its main staple food from other countries like Ukraine. And, and also Russia, to a lesser extent France and the US. Now uh, we see that, of course, with the Ukrainian crisis, this has a huge impact already on the food security situation in Tunisia and also in Egypt and, and also in countries like Algeria and, and even in sub-Saharan Africa. But even before this crisis happened in Ukraine, there were already in the past, we have seen in the 2000s that there were droughts in, in Russia, in Ukraine, that already led to less supply and less um, exports to Tunisia. So this was then creating higher food prices, inflation. And we could actually say um, there is evidence that um, this, so climate impacts elsewhere in third countries, was, were actually was one of the factors leading to the Arab Spring. Um, of course, the situation is very complex, but indirectly, you could say um, it, it was one of the one of the causes. So this the, the problem really is this very high food import dependency that you have also in countries in West Africa that are countries like Senegal, like Burkina Faso, extremely dependent on food import from Asian countries in that case. So when you have droughts there, this will then have an impact on, on food supply. And now I mentioned, of course, we, we cannot, um, like it's, it's the main crisis of, of, the, of the day, uh, the, the Russian invasion in, in Ukraine, but even like I mentioned, also climate impacts have in the past have had an impact. And we see already now in, in China, just to give you some examples, there was um, a very extremely heavy rainfall in the winter uh, last year that also delayed planting. We have had except, exceptional droughts uh, that has have led to reduced crop production yields in Morocco. Um, right now, in we know that in Kenya, Somalia, Ethiopia, you have um, famine, um, extreme worries, extremely worrisome situations, and and this is due to climate change. All of these examples that I'm giving you, and they are leading to people in in the Horn of Africa right now. They are moving again. If we look at it from a gender perspective, women and girls are in very precarious situations, it's very unsafe for them to, to, to move from place to place, even give, give a birth to children, for example, in these type of circumstances. So yeah, it's, an, it's very worrisome. Thank you, Han. Um, Glada, do you want to add on that? Yeah, sure. I think Hannah covered a lot there. Um, I think she said that these issues are complex and we should be careful where we tribute 
conflict or political tensions to climate change because there can also be many, many governance factors that, uh, that underlie the effects that um, ongoing climate change is having. For example, people draw attention to the role of uh, several years of drought um, as, as a factor in the uh, civil war in Syria in 2011. And indeed, that drought um, had caused many people from rural regions, about a million, to uh, migrate to the urban areas, putting a lot of pressure on the services there, which led to tensions and frustrations. But it was just one factor, of course, um, amongst, amongst many, uh, similarly with the Arab Spring. Speaking of that, drought which really affected Syria and Iraq over many years together with a severe transboundary water uh, mismanagement problem given you know many many years of dam building uh, on the two major rivers that those countries share that is, is has also caused uh, recruitment to extremist groups so Daesh or ISIS uh, actually targeted Farmers who had lost their lands, lost their animals, um, who were in the markets, you know, clearly uh, suffering from poverty. So there is that, uh, the, the problems that occur with economic decline linked to harvest failure that then can drive people to, to join militant groups. And then, of course, there are uh, more sudden events. So that's more sort of slow onset, but there are more sudden events that can affect countries such as electricity outages from storms or floods that lead to humanitarian disasters, which we expect in future to exacerbate uh, tensions, potentially lead to protests uh, that can have cross-border impacts. But Hannah's already mentioned migration as well. Um, and migration from uh, sub-Saharan Africa into North Africa has already led to, to social tension in countries. It certainly there have been discriminatory practices and human rights abuses. Um, uh, against migrants across that region. The other way to look at geopolitical tensions emanating from climate change is in terms of the expected transition as well away from fossil fuels and what that means for exporter countries. Thank you both. I think with this first question, we understand the current issues caused by uh, climate change and how real it is for some of us across the world. We know now that for decades, uh, researchers and activists have been warning our world leaders on the security issues that will emerge from our changing environment. How does climate change challenge the concept of global security and traditional geopolitics? Looking at it from a European perspective, so really from the European Union, this um, climate change has been recognized as a threat multiplier for a number of years now. Um, and so I think the EU is, in fact, has been among uh, the most vocal proponents of the need to address security risks related to climate change. And so the issue, as I said, has been on the European foreign security policy agenda for, for more than 10 years. So in 2016, the EU presented its global strategy and it was there officially that it uh, presented climate change as a, as a threat multiplier. And the then, uh, so the former EU's high representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, Federica Mogherini, has in her discourse repeatedly emphasized the need to further develop European capacities with regards to climate change and security. The EU has set a positive example in approaching climate security nexus as such. But um, as, as, we, as we discussed, I think the on the one hand, climate change can be a, a threat uh, multiplier. But on the other hand, sometimes you have also a direct link. 
And that's always easier, of course, to understand. You can have biophysical conditions that have a direct impact on human societies. For example, when there are there are reduced uh, yields for farmers or when you have um, small island nations that are threatened by, by sea level rise. In those cases, it's easier also for the EU, of course, to, to um, respond to, to these type of threats. But when it comes to the very like complex situations of many different factors, such as including environmental degradation and climate change that lead to conflict, it's of course also for the EU in practice, then difficult to, to uh, respond to it. But in the field of development cooperation, for example, the European strategies for poverty eradication and sustainable development acknowledge the adverse effect of climate change. And um, you see that the EU has in December uh, presented its new multi-annual indicative programs, the MIPS, for um, seven-year periods. And so looking at the thematic program for peace, stability, and conflict prevention, we see that there are eight priorities in this MIP. And, um, and one is addressing the global and trans-regional effects of climate change and environmental factors that have potentially destabilizing impacts on peace and security. So this is uh, very positive, but I think then in the when it becomes more challenging is really in the in how to respond to these impacts in in a coherent way and in an effective way. And we can perhaps take up this this issue later in the in the conversation. Thank you, Han. Glada. I mean, I think our, certainly our security arrangements are not fit to deal with the kind of climate impacts that we expect to see and we, we are seeing. And there's, um, there's a big discussion going on within NATO in terms of the role that it should play with regards to climate change. Just a couple of years ago, I think I remember picking up a report from NATO, looking through it to see why climate change was mentioned. Um, and it was only mentioned with respect to the Arctic and the glacial melt and the new sea routes that that would uh, create and the kind of uh, geopolitical competition over those sea routes and over that territory. So really that was not, uh, that's, that's not uh, good enough and doesn't reflect the myriad of crises that we would see in, in all regions related to climate change. So there's, there's a lot of thinking going on there. The National Intelligence Council in the US, um, which is under the Pentagon, uh, produces something called the Global Trends Report uh, every few years. The last one uh, made a lot of mention of climate change more than ever before. Actually, they uh, they look out to 2040 in terms of uh, threats, risks, uh, opportunities in global economy and political environment. And uh, yes, climate change and environmental degradation was clearly seen as a as a huge threat across the world. So there's this thinking going on, but I don't think it's really joined up with um, the processes and actions that need to take place. They're still very much in the development of the UNFCCC space in terms of resilience building and risk mitigation. You know, this, this idea of cascading risks that we're working on is the way in which climate change impacts in one part of the world will compound with other dynamics that are going on, conflict and uh, trade wars and other things, and, um, and affect global supply chains, finance, investment, mobility, migration, all kinds of dynamics that, um, that are global and, and therefore, you know, we're all exposed 
you know, those methodologies of understanding the, the knock-on impacts and the transboundary impacts is really at quite an early stage. So in terms of the responses, it's security responses. They are evolving, but clearly we have a crisis in multilateralism at the moment. You know, this is a climate change has no respect for, for boundaries, for borders, political borders. Um, and we have at the moment a, a breakdown of cooperation between countries with, you know, with not only the Russia-Ukraine war, but um, but many other conflicts in other parts of the world, the, the antagonism between the US and China, the, the outbreaks of populist politics in, in many countries that are uh, causing uh, a more inward focus um, just at the time that we need better cooperation. So, you know, I, I think there are distractions from what we need to be working on together quite urgently to head off some of the bigger risks that, that climate change is going to bring. Perhaps I can elaborate a bit on the previous points. You really recognize this, the, the complexity of the climate security link, but um, the, it is still very difficult to respond to this on the ground. And I think, Glada mentioned already the importance of looking at governance issues. Huh? And um, I think it's in, in, for, in the case of the EU, it's often this lack of attention to um, governance in regards to the origin of environment and resource related conflict that has important and negative policy consequences. What we see often is that the, the European Commission, so at headquarters, they see environmental degradation and resource stresses as the principal drivers of conflicts, which is often the case. So their climate security programs, then they focus on supporting infrastructure to provide water, to provide food, to provide energy, and uh, particularly in, in fragile and conflict-affected countries. So the EU sees this in, in these areas as the, the best strategy to help foster societal resilience and strengthen also the presence of the state in undergoverned areas through the provision of these type of public goods. They can sometimes have negative consequences too, because if you provide better access to water in, in one area, it can increase the price of land too. And this again creates tensions among local populations there. So there are examples of this as well. But I think in, in general, the, the, the European Commission has paid less attention to building effective local institutions to sustainably manage those resources, you know, beyond the food or water or energy projects. And in that way, um, failed also to, to sufficiently reflect it in fragile and conflict-affected regions, the state's uh, legitimacy in controlling and managing these resources is often contested. And uh, this is so far an important omission, I think, in, in EU peace building. So this is, is definitely a point for improvement. And then an, another area of work that we look at in the Cascades project, actually, is how the EU can respond to, like Glada already mentioned, uh, to transboundary impacts coming from regions around the EU in, a, in an effective way. And there is, uh, to a large extent, a disconnect between the EU's development objectives let's say, trade objectives, food, even adaptation uh, policies. So that's, that's one, you have this disconnect between different policies. At the same time, another area of disconnect is between what the European Commission intends to do and what the member states tend to do. So there is this internal lack of internal coordination at the same time. And these two, I think, sets of problems, together with what I mentioned earlier, the lack of enough focus and it's not always easy to do that i mean the eu can only do so much of course in countries but the, the lack of focus on 
understanding the political context in countries, who has the power, who is governing the resources, and, and, and once the project is done, how will this continue to avoid further conflicts? Those are very difficult areas of work, I think, for the EU, and it's, it's difficult, I think, to be effective there. You touched on a really important issue, Hannah, which is that of inequalities and corruption that may already be happening in a country and the need for donors and partners, investors who are uh, planning to help a country build climate resilience not to actually exacerbate those factors because if anything is a trigger for or is it a driver you know a major driver for for conflict and tension it is corruption and inequality the inequality that that causes um we saw a few years ago in, in 2018 the outbreak of really violent protests in Basra for instance in southern Iraq when there were well over 100,000 people hospitalized from water poisoning now Water poisoning was not directly due to climate change, although climate change will have played a role in terms of reducing the, the water availability and then allowing the saline water to come in from the in Shafal Arab from the um, from the sea. But the facilities were not working properly, and um, most people saw that as a problem with governance and corruption. Uh, and they were not treating the water properly, basically, so it ended up being poisonous. But the outbreaks of violence were not just about that. Of course, they were about Unemployment. They are about these stark differences in an in, a, in an oil-rich region in southern Iraq, where there are very rich companies, rich compounds, and yet ordinary people cannot get jobs or drink clean water. So, I think it's it's kind of flashpoints like that that we'll see that when you think about investing in say the infrastructure to to create the water treatment, for example, which is going to be a massive issue. You know, how can people get clean water? Then we have to think about where is the money going? How can the partners ensure that that money is deployed effectively to build infrastructure that is sustainable and continues to be operated? You know, what are the checks and balances there? And the, the new agenda for the Mediterranean, which the EU launched last year, attempts to address this. It's very early days, though. And as Hannah said, you know, it's, it's something where we, we, we haven't yet seen the evidence. I think the, um, you know, the plans will be... Uh, being drawn up, drawing together what's already happening with with maybe some new cross-sectoral inputs. I think that'll be interesting to see. Great. Thank you. According to your experience, how climate change will shape tomorrow's conflict for resources? You already mentioned that there is an ongoing situation where uh, resources are at stake. But how would you imagine climate change issues being a shaper for different type of conflicts? Where should we start? Um, shall we start with food? I mean, food is a huge one because there are only a few major exporters of grains that we all depend on you know, in, in, in our diets. Uh, when drought strikes, as Hannah pointed out, often countries will impose um, an export ban, as Russia has done in the past, as India has done, in order to feed their own people, uh, which means that exports go down, which means that prices are less in the market, so prices go up, which means that governments have to either decide to pass on those prices to their um, populations or to subsidise and therefore maybe become indebted if the poor countries. Um, 
So food is a big one because land is, you know, fertile land is becoming more scarce. So at the same time as there being climate change, which is causing desertification and drought, you've also got the overuse of fertilizer, leaching, you know, the leaching of nutrients out of the soil is a massive problem with um, deforestation and uh, you know uprooting of vegetation, which keeps the soil in place. Uh, so coupled together with floods and uh, landslides, then you get more erosion. Uh, of, of soil so there is going to be a huge food problem what how does that lead to tension i think it can lead to the kind of social tensions and protests um that, uh, that hannah's referred to and that can cause migration and then lead to tensions from neighboring countries but it could also lead to kind of trade conflicts between between countries you know different forms of of alliances maybe with countries just trading between their their allies and neighbors and not others you know sort of breakdown of the global system um and and, and then animosity growing amongst others and therefore even to the point of countries invading other countries to gain access to their resources which you know may be playing out right now so i, I would say food is a big one i think i'll Possible to Hannah before we touch on anything else? Yeah, I think it's um, it's one of the most critical factors for instability because it's a basic need, and we know that food insecurity will lead to more instability. So, what is most important, I think, that we think of responses how we can stop these kind of spillovers. Of course, this requires complex responses to a very complex. Um, situation, and and we know we hear the the UN World Food Program talking about. Um, the, the next global food crisis. Um, so I think this is a situation that is extremely alarming, even in, in, and in so many different parts of the world. If you think of the Sahel, future of the Sahel, there is just one word, and that is drought. At the same time, we hear, of course, African governments, I just heard them like talk also about the, the huge potential for, of arable lands, uh, more than 60% um, in the African continent. But how to produce more and how to do it in a sustainable way. This will require so much innovation, um, technological innovation, data, also an understanding of climate impacts, sharing this data, and a very important also uh, good governance, the effects of institution building and so on. It's, it's really about transforming food systems to, to make them more resilient, more sustainable, but more resilient to climate impacts and, and other impacts, like, like Lena was mentioning, also due to like the, the, the conflicts we see right now in Ukraine and um, the trade implications of this. I think one, one of the questions to ask also is how to, how to change consumption, how to change also here in Europe, how to change con- consumption, because the, the way that we consume food, then also the other way around has impacts on the regions around Europe. So, and but this is always a very politically sensitive topic, changing diets, but it's an important debate to have and, and to think about how we can, for example, eat less meat and so on. Rethinking, like keeping markets open, but also rethinking supply channels together with how to consume, where do we get it from? The same, this, this debate also should be held, of course, in African context. I mean, this, this high food import dependency that has been coming back in our conversation again and again is is a very critical issue and it's and it's something that yeah we know make countries so vulnerable so how can you also change food systems within these countries in a in a sustainable way and and we see that often a vision for agricultural developments 
is lacking in many places, even in, in Tunisia, we see that has to do again with governance, again with power structure, who has an interest, like who who has a say in how the soil is being used. Is it more interesting to use the soil for export commodities or for production of food for, for local consumption? Yeah, definitely the idea of broadening our concept of food security is, is really critical so that we look at the consumption side diversifying diets as well as affordability for the poorest groups as well as how farming can be more regenerative Uh, my colleagues have just done a big project in southern africa with um, experts in tanzania malawi a couple of other places south africa as well uh, looking at um looking at a kind of blueprint for sustainable agricultural development so looking at all those the development issues around agriculture and how it can be more focused on being supportive of local communities because what uh, our consumption has tended to do in the northern countries is encourage very unsustainable patterns of farming in the fertile regions of Africa and Asia. I mean, it's simple as that. If you can get more money for growing, uh, you know, the kind of herbs, beans, flowers that we want to see in our supermarkets rather than growing uh, the diverse range of, of local products, then you switch. And often those products that we want, they're highly water-intensive. Tomatoes or courgettes and whatever that you see coming from Kenya or North Africa, they are importing water, you know, from a, from a water-scarce region. There's an interesting initiative as well that we're involved in with the Fair Water Footprints uh, Declaration that was signed in Glasgow by a few countries and companies uh, looking for trading, trading partners to work together on solving some of those those issues that are putting water stress on extremely um, vulnerable uh, areas. So I think that we need to to look hard at that. There's some really interesting initiatives in Africa actually looking at a return to less water-intensive crops and more diverse crops that are also nutrient-rich. So it's it's kind of solving energy problems in one. And I'll just jump in with a small specifying question what you just said. And like in order to leave a bit the listeners with, with the hope after everything we said, because we shared a lot of insecurities, a lot of challenges. And like me, myself as Ukrainian as well, it's, it's really worrisome to hear what you're talking about. And I, and I heard you were also debating in what you were saying between cooperation and competition. And I hear there are amazing projects there on cooperation in Africa, in Europe, globally, at the UN level. So is there a hope that with everything what's happening around, with all the crises, conflicts, with climate change, that actually we would wake up and we start cooperating more and like that this is exactly the hope and that's where the tendency is like the more crises we're having, the more cooperation we're seeing, or am I mistaken in this link? And the hope is not yet there. <laughs> Do you want to start, Hannah? <laughs> I'll have a think about that big question. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult one, but I I want to be hopeful. Actually, I want to I hope that this perfect storm, as they call it, you know, one crisis after another can be a wake-up call in, in, in a way and, and also yeah help not only in Europe but also in, in so in Africa where we work that it can help and rethink uh, the way we cooperate, govern resources also, produce foods and, and so on. I have a strong belief in, in the potential of technological innovation. Um, I think the Green Deal, the EU Green Deal, has really created like has put forward a really good framework for this at least internal EU transition 
and also the farm to fork. I mean, the whole idea behind it is to, to build um, resilient food systems in Europe. Of course, the crisis in, Euro in Ukraine forces us to uh, move even more quickly towards this green energy transition. This will all come at a cost. So I think this transition is also very difficult from a social perspective. Um, but but I, I feel in a way we are like, let's let's all try to be hopeful. And I think that we are at a kind of hopefully turning points that will, that will make us move more quickly um, towards a world that can be more sustainable and that and, and peaceful, hopefully also. I mean, it's it's, of course, very worrisome what's happening and I hope that this, um, the same also, of course, in the context of African countries, that it can also lead to, to more cooperation between countries, again, from a food systems perspective. Regional trade is something that is it's not very well integrated within countries, and that's why they are so food import dependent. I think it's a huge issue to work on. There is a role, of course, for international partners for the EU to play in, in helping to facilitate this, let's say. But that's that's uh, very important to focus on, on local, sustainable local food production in countries, a fair share of resources, but also regional, uh, regional cooperation, regional trades. Yeah, it's very easy to be pessimistic, I think, in terms of collaboration, cooperation to, to really solve this, these issues um, because they are multifaceted as well. And, um, and, and right now, trust is low and it's going to take a lot of trust building to get the kind of cooperation that we need, including amongst the major powers. We're not anywhere near on track to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. Climate change, you know, is heading for well, the outcome that we don't want, the disaster outcome in, in just a few decades. And so when we don't really know whether there are going to be tipping points at which our ecosystems go completely awry or whether systems are ecosystems, you know, can be pushed to us to the extent that they, they change radically and quickly. So, you know, we could see that in the next few decades too. Um, on the more positive side, I would say that it's amazing that we do still have these amazing multilateral organizations that we should work through and we should make the most of. Um, and as mentioned, the, the EU, um, we, we have the, the UN organizations, you know, we do have various security bodies as well that could adapt their role to deal with some of these issues. I've mentioned NATO, there are others too in Asia Pacific. There's a fear right now, I think, of losing out, you know, amongst companies and countries from the green transition that. Hannah is talking about so that you know with fear comes desperation and, and desperate measures and people make decisions to uh, around protecting themselves and their interests but when you think long term we are all set to lose out so if people can get out of the mindset of that short-term fear and see the bigger picture then there are opportunities for cooperation um there is I think at the moment that Fear is manipulated, it's manipulated by uh, certain interests and lobby groups and the press, of course, and you've seen that um, the term kind of populism that resists the policies and the measures that need to be taken to create that climate resilient future. And that is, a, you know, it is a real, a real issue. And you see that being exacerbated by social media. But social media is also the tool that has helped so many get the message out there, right, and create a really positive and progressive coalitions for change 
So we are on a precipice and I very much hope that um, leaders, you know, show their leadership in many different forms. I mean, it's not really coming from state leaders at the moment. So I think there is room for, for other types of leadership around the world. There was a fantastic meeting uh, earlier this year of religious leaders from all different groups around the world um, calling for conservation of ecosystems and action on climate change was quite amazing. There are other you know, civil society groups are pushing hard. So I like to see them. I would like to, to draw from that some optimism. Thank you for your insights and the analytical background. Considering with all the other episodes, it was a nice way to make it all in. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was very interesting. We hope you found this episode gripping and insightful. More to come on this mini-series, so stay tuned. To hear more on the diversity of international security topics, listen to other episodes from WiseProsers Voices channel. You can find us on social media and podcast platforms. Thank you for being with us.